Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Perhaps you've heard the story of a great king and his people who shared great and wonderful times together until inexplicably the people rebelled against their king and drank from a forbidden well. To their horror, they found that the beautiful water in the well so pleasing to the eyes, actually turned their hearts to stone. To help his people then, and heal their hearts, the king then asked his son, the prince, to drink from another well, one that contained terrible poison. The poison would surely kill the prince, but in love for his father, And for their beloved people, he drank willingly to the bitter end. In this story, a children's story titled The Prince's Poison Cup, was written to explain and illustrate what Jesus has done to help and heal his people from the fatal effects of their sin. And it is this story about this cup that we come to consider in John 18 this morning. For 17 chapters, John has been drawing our attention in this direction to these moments when Jesus Christ, through no fault of his own, would willingly suffer betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion for our sin and rebellion against God. For 17 chapters, Jesus has continued His march toward the cross on which He, the Prince of Heaven Himself, would give Himself in love for us. Though He is our Sovereign, He became our substitute by giving His life to give us life. So let's read it together. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. You know, in context, we've come out of the upper room discourse. We just finished last week this amazing prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. And then we come to 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was spoken to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you yet again for these wonderful moments you've gifted to us in which we come together to share in worship. Thank you for freeing us, saving us from the worship of worthless idols so that we might be set apart to instead worship with all our lives the one true and living God. Thank you for, for life. Thank you for new life. Thank you for the church and for the life of the church. Thank you for your church, even as we've sung this morning, your church throughout the ages and even today across the world. Thank you for the presence and ministry of your church. Thank you for your church in places like Haiti that can be a wonderful and necessary manifestation of your presence amidst such hurt and heartache and devastation. Thank you for your church here in our country, even here in the Sacramento region, and even more locally in this small part of the world we call South Placer County. Thank you for the other local churches in this community. We pray for them. We thank you for their ministries. We thank you for the ministry of the gospel that goes forth from their fellowships. We thank you for the many lives in this region that are wonderfully affected for Jesus Christ. Thank you for this church, for East Parkway Church, and for how you are affecting our lives for the gospel as well and making us more and more, making us ministers of it. Will you please speak the gospel to us this morning? Will you please take these amazing truths and speak them afresh to our sometimes tired and numb souls? Will you please bring 
and breathe life into each of our hearts this morning, even in these moments? Will you minister to each person? Will you encourage where encouragement is needed? Please reprove and correct where correction is needed. Please convict where conviction is needed. Please give us ears to hear your voice this morning and hearts made ready to receive that we might be a changed people who love and adore Jesus Christ more and more, moment by moment. We pray in His name and for His name's sake. Amen and amen. In the transition from chapters 17 to 18, the scene shifts to a garden in the Kidron Valley. And positioned between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley was where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. A garden frequented often by Jesus and His disciples. Judas knew this, of course, as mentioned in verse 2. And so Judas, verse 3, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And I want us to pause for a moment to just really get a sense of what's going on here. Jesus is in Gethsemane and He's praying. We know from the other Gospels, which we'll come to in a bit, Judas has been scheming against him and now arrives to betray him. And with him is a large detachment of men that includes uh, armed soldiers and ranking religious authorities. And we're not talking about merely a dozen or two, but as most scholars point out, this was more like an entire garrison that likely numbered into the hundreds. Matthew actually writes in his account that Judas came and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. And so I just want us to picture this large contingent of men that gathered in Jerusalem and then snaked down through the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of Mount Olivet, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. Picture the long line of torches flickering in the night and the sound of hundreds of footsteps methodically making their way to where Jesus was. Picture Judas leading the way. Just a few hours earlier, remember, in the upper room at dinner, Jesus had exposed Judas. And then Judas, his cover blown, left the room to no doubt put in motion the plan that he and the Pharisees had concocted together. We know this wasn't the original plan. The other New Testament Gospels reveal that initially they intended to wait until after Passover to arrest Jesus, not wanting to rouse those 
who were more receptive to him. But now that Judas was exposed, they scrambled and surmised that this was their best opportunity to capture and ultimately kill the Lord under the cover of night in a remote location when most everyone else would be back in Jerusalem preparing for the holiday weekend. This is the scene in which this betrayal took place. And yet none of it took Christ by surprise. Look with me at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And what John outlines next shows that Jesus was in full control, knowing what was coming and when. He has talked about this appointed hour, has he not, throughout his ministry, and now he faced it head on. He is, he is our sovereign. And here we observe his divine initiative, his divine authority, and his divine protection as well. First, his divine initiative. I want you to notice how Jesus came forward. Not shrinking from the moment, but stepping out to meet his captors and take charge of the situation. My Bible includes a wonderful observation here. Noting that earlier in the history of redemption, we read of it in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17, earlier in the history of redemption, another king had crossed the Kidron Valley, also reeling in the pain of betrayal. It was King David. And he had fled Jerusalem because his son Absalom had conspired to overthrow him by force and had also enlisted a small army to assist in the conspiracy. But whereas David fled from his conspirators at that time, here we see Jesus, our true king, not shrinking back in fear, but but advancing forward in full confidence and faith. I think that's important to notice. He knew all that, was, that awaited him, and yet he's the one initiating the confrontation. He's taking initiative. Divine initiative. Divine initiative coupled with divine authority. You know, from a human perspective, Jesus didn't stand a chance. He was grossly outmanned, and these were trained soldiers experienced in this sort of thing. Even they no doubt knew, I have to believe, even they no doubt knew that this show of force was unnecessary overkill. How could they not, given the wide disparity in numbers and weaponry? But then Jesus spoke. Whom do you seek? He asked. Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, he declared. And with that, catch this. They drew back and fell to the floor. 
I can only imagine how this must have looked when hundreds of armed guards were sent sprawling to the ground with just a word from the mouth of the Lord. And when he says, I am he, the he isn't actually in the original text. It was added later into our English translations just to help with readability, meaning that all Jesus said was simply, I am. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And this name, as some of you know, it harkens back to the days of Moses before the burning bush when God said to Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. In other words, God defines himself with himself, which means he doesn't need any props to verify his credentials. We use props all the time, don't we? We use props all the time. We use, we use our job, our education, our degree, our experience, our wealth, our popularity, our achievements as props all the time to help bolster our standing in the eyes of others, but not God. God explains Himself with Himself because there's nothing to add to what's already there. And so with this reply, I am, Jesus revealed His divinity. And when He did, their only response was to hit the ground. That's what happens when someone encounters the one true living God. They're floored. They're floored either literally or figuratively or both. It's happened countless times in the past, which we read in Scripture, and it's a preview, hear this, of what will happen in the future when at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. And so, there they are on the ground. They're picking themselves up out of the dirt. And he asks again, whom do you seek? And again, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, don't you think you'd reconsider your intentions here? I mean, if you and your posse came up on Jesus with this impressive show of force and he sends the entire lot of you to the ground with just his name, (laughs) don't you think you'd rethink what you're about to do? I think if I was picking myself up off the ground to hear Jesus ask me again, whom do you seek? (laughs) 
I'd say something like, no one, I'm good. I'm good. Just, you know, I'm just going to pick up my sword, going to pick up my club, and I'm heading home. Sorry to bother you. Have a good night. It's getting late. My wife's probably wondering where I am. And I'm out of there. There's a lesson here, and it's actually pretty sad. It's sad because they missed their opportunity. They missed their opportunity to affirm Christ as Lord. And isn't that the same issue today? That so many people today are so entrenched, so set in their ways that they stubbornly refuse to see what is so obvious and overwhelming. One of our main problems as fallen people, let's admit it, is that we have authority issues. We have authority issues. I mean, we don't like answering to each other, right? Much less to some higher being. It's a sin issue. Isn't the essence of sin, the essence of sin, is it not a matter of authority? It's, it's about, will we choose our way or God's way? Can you, can you imagine what, what Judas was thinking in this moment? I can't help but think that as he picked himself up out of the dirt, that in those fateful moments, oh, he knew he had made a grave mistake. He once stood with Jesus, but as John notes in verse 5, now he stood with them. His loyalties now known, he had chosen the wrong side and would soon reap the dreadful consequences of his foolish and hardened heart. And I just want to say to us, don't let that be you. So much pain in this world comes because we choose to not live under divine authority. But God's but God's authority is good for us. As creatures made in His image, life works better when lived under the authority of our Creator. So learn from Judas, if nothing else, learn from Judas, from his sin, and from these stubborn soldiers who refuse to acknowledge Christ as Lord. Listen, which side have you taken? Do you stand with Jesus or do you stand with those opposed to Jesus? And we need to know there's no middle, there's no third option. Choose this day whom you will serve. Be like the other 11 disciples who who here we see them, they trusted the Lord and they were protected by the Lord. The arresting party no doubt came for them too to seize the Lord and his leading men, 
presumably to just squash and squelch the entire movement at once. Jesus knows this, which is why he says in verse 8, listen, if you seek me, let these men go. Right? He's protecting them. He's putting himself in harm's way for them, keeping his promise that none of his will ever be lost, not even one. Already in chapter 6, he had said that he would lose none of those whom the Father gave to him. In chapter 10, he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. In chapter 17, he said, speaking specifically of those who were with him that night, I have guarded them, Father, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus has promised to protect his people. And now, demonstrating his love for them, he steps out to meet the opposition, declares his divine authority, and shield his disciples from them, our shield and defender. Now, they would face opposition in due time. Jesus has already warned them of this. But even then, in life and in death, They came to know that God's good purposes always prevail and that God does indeed work all things for the good of those who love him and are called by him. And this promise, the promise itself, serves to protect you from whatever doubt or despair may plague you from whatever forces may come against you. You see, because Jesus has stepped forward in our place, we have this blessed assurance that nothing, neither neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Now I know I speak for every parent in the room when saying that we all love our children immensely. Right? And we want what's best for them. And we do all we can to serve and protect them. And yet we know in that, we know that that we are imperfect parents at best and that our power to protect is limited. It's obviously limited, but not God. He is perfect. His ways are perfect. His will is perfect. And His power is without limit. And so this assurance of divine protection and love, sometimes referred to as eternal security, is so freeing to your faith, to our faith. Because to know that God is for you, hear this, to know that God is for you is to be freed from the fear of what others may do to you 
or say about you or even think about you. He loves his children perfectly with an everlasting love and he's promised to protect them in the ultimate sense forever. So we have divine initiative and divine authority and divine protection. These verses here present Jesus Christ as our sovereign while the, the verses that follow, 10 and 11, reveal him to be our substitute as well. Let's read it. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has has given me? And this statement in verse 11 is the key statement that frames the entire passage. And I, I contend it frames the entire gospel of Christ. Because here Jesus speaks about a cup that has been given to him by the Father. And so we have to ask, what is this cup? Biblically, we know that there, was, there are there, there, there is the cup of blessing and the cup of judgment or, or the cup of wrath. And we know that this cup refers to God's wrath, to the full measure of his wrath. It's a cup filled to the brim and overflowing with divine wrath towards sin. God is holy and his holiness demands justice, just as God is love so also is he just. They are equally essential to his character. In fact, it would be unloving were God to not punish wrongdoing. I mean, imagine a society where wrong was allowed free reign and justice never prevailed. You wouldn't want to live there. Thankfully, God won't have that. He cares too much to allow that. His wrath, therefore, flows from His love because He cares about upholding what's right while holding what's wrong accountable. But here's the rub. We're in the wrong. And we're the the ones being held accountable for our wrong. Because all have sinned, we each bear responsibility. We are the guilty offenders. If this were a courtroom, we are the defendants, and the evidence against us is overwhelming, and it makes the guilty verdict both right and just. We are the ones under the sentence of death who rightly deserve the wrath of God in a very real way. Please hear this. Each one of us in this room has added poison to the cup. All of us. But for reasons beyond our wildest comprehension, God
in divine love and justice and grace beyond measure has provided a means of forgiveness and rescue in Jesus Christ. Though he is the judge to whom we must give account, he, in a sense, Jesus, has stepped down from his bench to suffer our sentence himself. He who is rich in mercy has died in our place. He who is grace and truth drank this cup so that we wouldn't have to. Was this, was this an easy cup to drink? No, we know from the other Gospels that just before his captors arrived onto the scene, Jesus anguished in prayer over this cup. In those gut-wrenching moments, according to Matthew, he said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Mark writes that Jesus fell to the ground in prayer, suggesting that the weight of this cup in those moments was more than his physical body could bear. Luke records him being in such agony that he was sweating. Now, when was the last time you even sweat in prayer? But not only was he sweating, he was, his sweat, we're told, was, was becoming like drops of blood. Father, he anguished, if you are willing, Father, 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 please, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but your will be done. Jesus knew the full horror of sin and death. Though he never sinned and is without sin, he knew full well what drinking this cup entailed. He knew the toll it would take on him physically as he would be beaten, scourged, and crucified without cause. He knew the toll it would take on him emotionally as he would be mocked, jeered, and shamed publicly. He knew the toll that it would take on him spiritually. By bearing our sins and becoming sin on the cross, he knew the separation from his heavenly Father that he would endure, that in those horrific moments, the just wrath of the Father would be unleashed upon His only Son, that the Father, being infinitely holy, would turn from His beloved Son to drink the cup alone. Oh, the physical toll was excruciating, and the emotional toll no doubt exhausted every ounce of His strength, but the spiritual toll was more painful by far. So in facing this prospect, it's no wonder that Jesus asked the Father to remove the cup. We can understand that, right? We can empathize with that, right? What is beyond our understanding is how Jesus resolved to drink this cup anyway. In those moments of earnest prayer, the decision was firmly cemented. Having sought the Father's will, He rose to obey it. 
So that by the time we get to this verse, verse 11, he says with no hesitation whatsoever, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And I want you to know the Bible wants you to know God wants you to know that because Jesus drank this cup to the bitter end means that you if you know him as your sovereign substitute will never drink even one drop not one drop It means that all your sins, all the baggage from your past, whatever mess you've made today, and any sin you have yet to commit has already been justly punished by God in Christ so that you can be justly freed from punishment by Christ who joyfully brings you before the Father to enjoy life with God without shame or even the hint of condemnation. Not even a hint. You know, some of us are tireless critics of our past. in that we'd rather wallow in past sins than be forgiven our sins. And some of us, if we're honest, are tireless pretenders. Some people. And that we'd rather give the appearance of godliness, though our hearts are far from him. And still some others are tirelessly striving in their own strength, trying to earn their own way before God. They're like Peter, I think, in this passage in verse 10. Taking matters into their own hands. I think Peter, in a very real way, was rejecting the way of the cross. He would much rather fight his way out, or at least try to, than trust Jesus who laid his life down. And so we must just stop wallowing in our sin. I mean, if it's true, and it is, that because Jesus drank the cup to the bitter end, that those who know him will never drink even one drop. The Bible says that true, that's true. And because it is, there's no need to wallow in your sin. There's no need to pretend with God. You're not fooling him anyway. And there's no need to try to earn your way because Christ has done it for us. 
You see, we all drank from that forbidden well. And all our hearts turned to stone. But the prince, the prince of heaven himself, drank the poison that was set for us. So that for those who trust in Jesus, this cup of wrath is wonderfully replaced with the cup of eternal blessing. Though he is our sovereign, and he is, he became our substitute also by giving his life to give us life with God. Amen. Thank you for these eternal truths, God. Will you free us? Even now, will you free us more and more? Not just from the penalty of our sins. Oh boy, please free us from that. Please, if there are any here, if there, if there is even just one person here who is still under the penalty of their own sins, will, God, will you be pleased to save their souls? And then for the rest of us, God, will, will you help us to, will you, will you save us not just from the penalty of sin, but from this, just from the, the fact that we're still plagued by it. Maybe there's someone in the room who just has unconfessed sin in their heart, and, or maybe there's someone who's just wallowing over sin, and someone tirelessly striving in their own strength. God, will you please come and minister to them and speak your truth? to them today and every day really help us to sing now with with voices that have been freed that we may declare your praise today and for all eternity thank you amen